The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Kate Fletcher, Kate's fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, a little program designed to give you tips and tools, stuff you could use in your own world to get your mojo working in or out of work and perhaps help somebody who's close to you or a workmate who's just struggling a bit. Welcome aboard the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Your conductor is at the front of the bus. Please give him a nudge as you go past if he's nodded off. Oh, you're awake. Robbo. I am awake. Week show. Yeah, I, um, I usually try to wake up the stop before we get here to the opener of the show, yes. <laughs> yeah, I stop for red lights. <laughs> That's it. And let's go around the grounds, AP. <laughs> let's just say you're here, you are... In the room, you're in the house. Are you present? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Lola, welcome. Hello, boys. Lola, can you give us a track that would put us in the zone? Could you give us a Fiervana song this week, Lola? So, to kick us off, Let's get started this week. The bus is in gear. Robbo, a remarkable fact, please. Robbo's remarkable fact. It's about time. Let's go. Again, I have two because I couldn't pick. So two quick ones. Here we go. Uh, you have a young daughter. Does she study music? Yes. Well, this might be interesting for you. Students who have experience with music performance, according to a study in the United States, or taking music appreciation courses, score higher on their SATs, which is the US version of our HSC, and I can't remember what they call it in the UK. But one report has indicated that they score on average 63 points higher on verbal tests, 44 points higher on maths, Uh, Music students also tend to show higher self-confidence, more responsible risk-takers, good team players, have increased coordination, are more creative and emotionally developed and have, have a healthy sense of achievement. So more than just so a music what you're class. Saying is that you, what you're saying is you should have done music as a kid. <laughs> yeah, probably should have. And I'm glad that my I'm glad that my two eldest boys who are in school are doing music. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, second fact. Second fact. Okay, going back to 2016, Adele releases 25, Beyonce releases Lemonade, and Ariana Grande 
releases Dangerous Woman. What was the highest selling CD in 2016? That was the remix of Thank God I'm a Country Boy, John Denver. (laughs) (laughs) Remix. Remix. Do you know what? You would never get it. You could sit there for months. The highest selling CD was from Mozart. It was a box set celebrating the 225th anniversary of Mozart's death. It was the highest selling CD in that year. Lola, this will be left field. Do 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 we have any Mozart in the studio? How's this one? I could listen to that all day sometimes, you know. There's just a certain mood you're in sometimes when you hear that music and it just does it for you. All right, let's get on to the show. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Akshay Nanavate. He's a former US Marine veteran. He's a speaker, entrepreneur, so he's a business guy. He's a writer and he's an ultra runner, not just any ultra runner. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Now, typically as we find the high achievers who have got a great opinion or a tip or a tool for us to help us get our mojo working have faced some of life's most difficult challenges and this guy has, not only in his ultra running, but also in his own personal life, he's been in some pretty dark places. And then by actually discovering that the adversity or stepping into those dark places or stepping into challenges can be one of our greatest gifts. And that can be an access point to help us find out what we're all about and, in his words, to provide a personal evolution. So Akshay has put together a book called Fearvana, which is kind of a philosophy he lives by and now a best-selling book. He's taken on some amazing challenges, as in climbing mountains in the Himalayas to scuba diving into underwater caves, which anybody who's been underwater will know that is terrifying. But he's also dragged, get this, a 190-pound sled, 350 miles across the second largest ice cap in the world in temperatures as low as minus 40. I mean, get your head around that. Wow, wow. So... Akshay is a guy who puts the rubber on the, as we should say, the ice-capped road. If fear, adversity or hard times are holding you back and you just know you want more out of your life, a more fulfilled life, then I'd have to say that this is going to be the show for you. So with all that being said, Akshay, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. Pleasure to be here. It's a real, real privilege to have you on today, mate. And just, just to kick us off, if somebody walks up to you for the first time to meet you and says, what do you do? How do you like to reply? What I've started kind of saying, and, and I'm curious, I always get, I'm always fascinated by the, re- the response when I say this, is I help people develop a positive relationship to suffering so they can live a happier and more meaningful life. And I do this through a series of products and services around my brand, Fearvana. So the positive relationship to suffering part is the part that always draws fascinating um, <laughs> and curious responses. You've you've done a lot, which we're going to track through during the show. At what point in your life did you actually first become conscious of the whole Fiavana philosophy? Was there a moment where 
you were doing it, then you consciously went, okay, this is a thing? Yeah, you know, I had, I had been doing it for a while. I'd been kind of living this lifestyle for a little while since I joined the Marines. Uh, you know, I got into rock climbing, skydiving, cave diving. I used to free climb rock walls without rope, fractured four bones in three months from skydiving and rock climbing. Did a lot of intense and dangerous things, was deployed to Iraq with the United States Marines in 2007. But I think when I crystallized it with the name, and honestly, my ex-wife actually came up with the name, though she came up with the, the word Fearvana, but it was after I had recovered from some pretty dark spaces. When I came back from the war, I had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I struggled with depression, struggled with alcoholism until I was on the brink of suicide. And coming out of that dark space, like initially just to heal myself and then really to something more meaningful to figure out, you know, how do we all navigate the experience of human suffering? Because of course, everybody's suffering in some way. That was when I said, I mean, that was when I was just talking with my ex-wife one day and we were like, the vision was kind of to, okay, let's write a book. Let's, let's share this message, the learnings that I'm coming up with through my own healing. Let's share this with others. And, uh, she coined the word Fearvana. And when she did, it was like, that was the goal mine, you know, I mean, mm. bought 20 different Things related to Fearvana and everything. <laughs> you you just mentioned PTSD, and I'm sure a lot of us hear about that with the guys who are in the military and coming back. And I, I don't know if it really heard anybody describe kind of what it is and what it, what's it feel like to have PTSD. Like, how do you know? One of the things I had started to learn when when I was kind of in my own self healing is that there's a distinction between post traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. So for example, like I was jumpy when there's loud noises. I struggled with crowds. I struggled with survivor's guilt. These were all symptoms that I had that indicated post-traumatic stress in the sense that these were very normal human responses to war where, you know, when you're in war, your brain learns to say loud noises equals death. You better be more vigilant. Crowds could equal people killing you. Be more vigilant. Survivor's guilt is a very normal human response to any traumatic experience, not just for veterans, anybody who really loses somebody. And uh, so these symptoms were indicative, indicative of post-traumatic stress, but the attachment of the word disorder to it is what I struggled with and eventually removed. So I'll always say that I was diagnosed with PTSD, not that I have PTSD, because there's a distinction. I had post-traumatic stress. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean it's a disorder. And I think that we, and through a lot of research, I can also validate this, is that we we attach the word disorder to more often than not. And to be honest with you, trauma can easily equal growth. But we've kind of lived in this world that's created a self-fulfilling prophecy that when we go through an experience like war, it will inevitably lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, which is not the case. Yes, it will lead to post-traumatic stress, but post-traumatic stress is also an access point to post-traumatic growth. So that's kind of what I started to learn is the distinction between the two. And the value in that was then I removed that label. I had been diagnosed with it, but I, I let go of that label within myself. And I kind of created this new label, Fearvana, right? Like that, that struggle and suffering of the, the trauma, anything can be an access point to bliss and enlightenment. I think, I think it's a great distinction. And I'm just wondering in your own mind, is it almost by having the word at the end of post-traumatic stress disorder, by having the disorder, are, you, are we almost creating an identity for people to say, you've got that disorder that is now part of your and or your identity? Do you think by removing the word, it changes the identity somebody takes on or doesn't? Great question. And absolutely. I mean, I see this with a lot of veteran friends of mine, because when they, when they're told we have PTSD, it kind of feels like, oh, then every time I have a symptom of post-traumatic stress, 
I think there's something wrong with me. Like I have veteran friends who struggle with anger issues after the war. And every time this would show up, they'd say, oh, I have a disorder. There's something wrong with me. And it becomes this kind of negative uh, uh, downward spiral of inner, inner conversation. As a quick example, too, this psychologist, Dr. Martin Seligman, went to uh, West Point, which is a leading military academy. And he asked the cadets out there, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? And it was like 95%. And then he said, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? And it was less than 5%. So we haven't even created a cult of it, like the, uh, the belief system that trauma, that adversity, that suffering of any kind can be an access point to growth. I mean, even in the US, when I tell people I'm a veteran, I know this is coming from a place of love. So, you know, I appreciate that. But there's almost this kind of sympathy, like, oh, poor you, you know, there must be something wrong with you must have suffered as opposed to, oh, he's been through war means he come, came out stronger, right? And again, not, not to condone war. The point is that trauma and struggle can be an access point to growth. So that word makes a big difference. It makes a big difference in how we view our own relationship to ourselves and our self-identity. You mentioned survivor's guilt when we opened the show. And I'm just curious, you had a sign on your wall of a teammate and you had copy written next to it, but then you've now changed that copy. Tell us about that picture, what it means, what was written there, and now what's written there, why did you change it? This was a friend of mine who I lost in the war, and um, for a long time I struggled with that guilt, that I felt like it should have been me that died instead of him. What right did I have to come back alive? What right did I, I didn't get shot, I didn't lose a limb. What right did I have to be happy, to be whole, to even be alive? So. When I finally confronted my guilt and learned to embrace it and find meaning in it, what I did was I put a picture of my friend and it said, this should have been you, earn this life. And my guilt became fuel. My guilt became fuel. This is actually what like drove me to finish writing my book, to get it out there, to put in the work, to do all of that. But eventually, um, I guess the guilt became all-consuming. The guilt became I pushed too far, like anything. You know, there's no see what I kind of learned is there's no bad or good emotions. There's only emotions, and any emotion can be used co- when consciously in, in service of our benefit or our or, or or harm. So the guilt had become gotten to a point where it was pushing me too far, and so now what I I changed the words from from my uh, from what I have the picture, and it says honor his death, earn this life. So it was kind of, a, it was a subtle shift, but it's a very powerful shift as opposed to saying this should have been you. Because the reality is now, you know what, I am alive. And it's not that the guilt never shows up, it hits me from time to time. But by shifting it to honor his death, it was really in, in more of a direction to the future as opposed to a regret for the past. Okay, look, he's dead now. This is nothing I can do about it, but let me honor that and earn this life by still doing something meaningful with it. So I just realized that I had let the guilt become too all-consuming, and that was sending me into some darker spaces to the point that it it wasn't becoming productive anymore. And it's interesting because I've heard you say that guilt was one of your great drivers. And what I'm curious about is having heard what you've just said, I'm now on the fence of it drove you, but then it went too far and hindered you. For most people, it hinders them. How do you, do you now use guilt? Have you changed your mind on it? Or is it a tool for you? Does it still, because you've done some incredible endurance events and you've got an incredibly long, uh, strong sense of mind and mind power. How, where, where does guilt now sit for you? You know, like every other emotion, I don't think it's a negative emotion. It's a challenging emotion. There's no doubt about that. 
and it has its role. It was just becoming for me all consuming. Like I noticed how prevalent guilt was in every area of my life, like simple things. If I was spending time with family, I'd, I'd feel guilty that I wasn't working. If I was working, I'd feel guilty that I wasn't spending time with family. You know, I was constantly feeling this overwhelming amount of guilt no matter what I did. And so like any emotion, I mean, even the search for joy can get carried away too far, right? So we we just need to temper it and become more conscious of the role this emotion is playing in my life. So does it still have value? I absolutely believe it does. It's just that I realized I took it too far. So like, for example, when guilt really was invaluable to me, I recently spent a, a week running 167 miles across Liberia to help build a school out there. And about three days in, maybe 17 miles in for the run for that day, I had this aching pain on my shin and it kind of hit me real hard. I, was, I paused to try to massage it, put some cream on it. It wasn't going away. So I started limping for about a mile and a half. And then I started sprinting, just running and sprinting. And the whole time I'm saying things to myself like, you should have died in the war. Earn this life. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. Remember Neil? Neil is my friend who died. I said, that should have been you. You have no right to complain. Keep fighting. Suck it up. Stop whining. And having this, so my guilt became fuel in those five miles. It was like tapping into my demons. And those five miles were the fastest five miles I ran that entire day. I mean, that entire trip across Liberia, that entire 167 miles. So there are still moments where sometimes I'll consciously put on a war movie knowing that it'll make me cry. I'll feel guilty that I haven't suffered enough, that I haven't done enough in the war. I don't engage it as much as I used to, but there, it still has its place and still has its value. We just need to become very, and I'm by no means am I perfect at it, but we need to become very conscious and aware of when we want to tap into the darkness, tap into the, the tap into our demons, tap into the light, tap into any emotion. The idea, I mean, ultimately, we want to get to a point where we can access anything at will. So I can go into darkness. I mean, literally, I just also spent seven days in darkness and also go into light, you know, go into guilt, go into joy, go into pain, go into fear, whatever it may be, and choose how I want to access it and use it in service of the work that I do for humanity. If I take you back a little ways, you just into the Marines for a second. And in 2007, you were deployed to Iraq. And one of your jobs was to walk in front of the vehicle convoy looking for IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and to detect them before they could be used to kill you and or your fellow Marines. Each morning you pull your boots on, you put on your, 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 your kit, knowing you're going to walk in front of that convoy into the streets of Iraq, which are, and you hear story, anyone who's been over there will tell a myriad of stories about IEDs and the damage, the brutal damage they do. Tell me the dialogue. Is, was there a default voice? We've talked about being on that run in Liberia. What was the default soundtrack that went through your mind each morning when you pulled up your boots or when you set off, you had your mission and you were set off that day? Because it's such an incredible thing to go, you know they're out there and your job is to find them. What was the soundtrack in your head? To be honest with you, I didn't think too much about it. You know, you couldn't, I mean, you can't get lost down that that train of thought. You, I didn't think too much about it. Every morning's brief, depending on the mission, you go for the brief, you 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 get ready, and you go on the mission, and uh, and that's it. And you kind of really stay present to the to what happens during every mission, you know. Because we didn't have, uh, I went closer to the end of the war, so it's not like there were crazy firefights happening regularly. I mean, we had rounds go off, we had a rocket try to hit our base. It it ended up kill it going hitting the village across. We did have one company in our, I mean, one vehicle in our company got hit with an IED. So there were there was stuff like that happening, but it wasn't 
sort of wild, wild west every, every day, think crazy things happening. So you just kind of, to be honest with you, I didn't think about it too much. And partly I would also say this because my tolerance for risk at this point was very high compared to the average Marine out there. And I'm not saying this in sort of a bragging way. It's just, it was a fact because I had done things like free soloing up rock walls, climbing mountains in, in, in Alaska. I'd done a lot of dangerous things at this point already before I came, got into the war. So my level of, um, comfort with fear. My tolerance for risk was very, very high at this point. And I remember because some missions we'd go out and uh, the junior Marines would fe- would have felt like severe threat to their life at this at the end of this mission, whereas I barely phased me, you know? So uh, my brain had just kind of developed this comfort with fear. So yeah, there wasn't much of a dialogue. And also, to be honest with you, I went out there um, in a very dark place. I-, I went out there almost not expecting to come back alive. So I would have rather done that job than anybody else. If somebody was going to get blown up, I would have rather it been me than somebody else because I had already lost my friend in the war. He actually went to war before me and we were supposed to go together. But one summer I was vacationing in India and he ended up going. And I always felt guilty that I didn't go with him. So when I finally got my chance to go to war, it was kind of like, I mean, I remember when we got the call to get activated. I was sitting there with a smile. Some of the junior Marines were scared. I was like, finally, you know, I was ready to go. I was waiting to go, to be honest with you. So it didn't, it didn't phase me too much. You've used this term, there is beauty in adversity. And you are a guy who seems to thrive in adversity. Is there a, a moment you could remember where you actually stopped in amongst that adversity and went, man, this is beautiful? It happens a lot, actually, my, my, the, like the beauty of experiencing adversity. I mean, I really, start, I really discovered it when I first joined the Marines because before that I had great, I mean, have great parents, gave me the best life I could possibly ask for, no struggles as a child, you know, went to great schools, all this kind of stuff. Um, then I got very heavily into drug addiction in high school. I lost two friends to drug addiction, and I call it kind of that burden of affluence. I was this spoiled kid, wasting, my, you know, wasting away on drugs, almost could have died, to be honest with you. I was, again, in a very dark way, and, and I pushed, like I, like I do everything, I pushed it to the extreme. So I really could have, I used to cut my arm, burn myself. I mean, I was, I, you know, I could have easily died. So when I joined the Marines, I started to find the beauty in adversity. I mean, Marines is obviously tough, right? Like training was brutal. It was hard. But that's when I found value in struggle, value in pushing my limitations, value in discovering that I'm capable of so much more than I think I am. And as a result of joining the Marines is when I started pushing myself in other ways, like rock climbing, mountain climbing, all that other stuff. But so it was the Marines when I first started tapping into it. And then ever since, I mean, in a way, you know, I went through my ups and downs after that, after the war. But the the beauty of adversity has kind of stuck ever since. And I've been pursuing it in all kinds of ways. I mean, I spent a month dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across the world's second largest ice cap in minus 40 degrees, which of course, as you can imagine, was insanely tough, you know, (laughs) but all of these experiences. And now as an ultra runner, even writing my book was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Building a business is hard. Everything is, is hard. But the only, like the, all the things that I've done worthwhile in my life, like if I were to die tomorrow and look back at my life, Everything I've done worthwhile has been challenging, has been hard, has been a struggle. Nothing worthwhile comes easy. And so I constantly recognize it. I mean, I'm going like the workouts I do on a regular basis, they're brutal. <laughs> the runs I do, they I mean, I just recently ran 72 miles and at mile 48 I hit a soul crushing low. Soul crushing low. I was just complaining about life. I didn't want to be there. I hated everything. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I mean, it was miserable. It was miserable. I just sat there just, you know, just 
absolutely hating life. But I got up and I took another step. I went one more mile, went two more miles. And, you know, even though I experienced that soul crushing low, I know I'm going to do another run like that because there's value in that low. I, I, I do those runs not expecting to avoid those lows, but to engage those lows. Because if I ever do a run and I like a long run and I don't experience that, that soul crushing low or don't experience that pain, that means I haven't worked hard enough. That means I haven't pushed hard enough. I mean, one of my rules for myself is after every really long run, I need to be limping for at least a day after that. Otherwise, I haven't worked hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually quite a contradiction in this because you said you came from loving parents. They provided well for you. And then when I hear you say you went into the Marines, then you became an addict. That must have crippled your parents with worry and concern and heartache. And what's the contradiction is that you knew you were doing it and then you did it, even though you knew that it's probably hurting and crippling them. Take me back to that time. How do you reconcile that time in your life where you know you're damaging the people who mean the most to you, but you still do it? No, it's a great question. It's a tough one too. I mean, it was it was challenging, of course. Like, I mean... My, I've been I've been a nightmare of the child a child from the get go between you know the drugs in high school and then I mean it was it was a tough path for them because here's this kid who was on drugs they didn't know the extent I was on drugs till many many years later but here's this kid I had gotten caught doing drugs in school and stuff like that so I'd gotten caught doing everything drinking I had been arrested for lighting a microwave on fire I mean I was <laughs> I got caught doing a lot of stuff so uh, I wasn't very good at hiding it uh, but they, here's this kid doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, I've been, again, a very challenging child. And then now I'm coming out of that and joining this, joining the military. Like there's like this discipline, there's this, you know, value to it, but inevitably it's post nine 11. I would have almost certainly gone to war, which obviously I did end up going. So, you know, it was, it was hard. I mean, my parents really struggled when I was in Iraq. It was very, very hard on them. Um, it's always harder on the people back home because they, it's, there's the unknown 24 seven, you know? So I mean, I think that now they would say this too, that they're proud of me. So I guess I reconcile it in the sense that, you know, we all have to be who we have to be. I try to be the best son that I can possibly be now. I mean, I'm by no means am I perfect. I screw up like the rest of us, but uh, I try to be a good son. I try, like I try to be, you know, give back to them and, and really be there for them and love them in whatever way I can. But I have to be me. Like I, if I, if I crush who I am, who I choose to be, there's no point. So what that means is I'm going to continue to do dangerous things. There's no doubt in my life that I'm going to continue doing dangerous things. But if I die at, let's say, 40 years old and die having lived the life I've lived, I mean, already at 34, I have lived lifetimes worth of life experiences, you know, and I feel blessed for that. And my parents are now proud of me because of what is come from that. Um, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't be this person had I not done these things. So, it, it, of course, it's challenging for all those who love me. But, you know, I mean. It, that's what makes me alive. That's what makes me me. And I have to, and so I manage the risk also. Like when I climb, like for example, I no longer free solo up rock walls. I don't climb rock walls without rope anymore because the line of risk for that was too high. And I felt like it wasn't right to, to do that anymore, you know? So I manage the risk as best I can, but I can't live my life without risk. I mean, well, there's always going to be risk. And I think the, I mean, the most valuable thing in life is life itself, right? So when you put that itself on the line, you actually live a greater and more powerful life than you could possibly imagine by, by being present to your own mortality, by engaging death. So it, it's tough. They go through a rough time, but uh, I do the best I can to make <laughs> risk. And, uh, <laughs> If we, if we talk about your, your dad for a second, he was a very successful 
business guy. I think with 3M, yeah. he had very high standards. You said he was very ambitious. Through your growing up with your dad, who is a corporate executive at one of the most high-profile companies, brands in the world at that time, did you, did you ever carry a feeling of having something to prove? You know, not really. I think maybe because when I was growing up, we, we moved around a ton. Uh, like we moved from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore to Austin. By the time I was 13, I'd lived in four different cities. And so I was in my way just kind of figuring out my own path. Um, and and I, guess, I guess I never really like understood the level of success that he had at the time. I mean, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know... I mean, I knew he obviously had a job and all, but I wasn't really present to what that entailed, what he did. I was kind of doing my own thing. And then obviously for a year and a half, I was on drugs, so I didn't care about anything except the, <laughs> the, the, but, uh, but only later on, I realized, you know, when he became the managing director for 3M India, which was, he was basically running 3M India. I knew how, and you could see how much respect he was getting. And I, I knew how successful he was, but I never want, I like, that was his path. And this was not my path. You know, like mine was very, I'm not, I mean, I'm the black sheep of my family joining the Marines. There's no other, <laughs> you know, like the military guy, like the things that I do, it's very unique. My, all my extended family is all very much or sort of, and not saying this in a derogatory way, it's just no right or wrong, good or bad. It's just the more normal job kind of thing, you know? So it wasn't like proving something to him. It was always, I guess, become proving something to myself. If I take a little off ramp here and continue this conversation, because what what's really funny with these sorts of conversations with people like yourself is, I mean, generally there's a dark place, there's a time where you've had to reconcile your own world and make a change. So, and then people hear that and they hear about you going across ice caps, doing long runs, the military, rock climbing. And people will listen and go, well, that's okay for you, mate, but I have no intention of doing any of that. However, this weekend they've got to give a speech at a wedding or there's an executive who has to have a really difficult conversation with somebody at work today, or there's a young guy or girl who wants to ask somebody out, or some, a sales guy has to go and make that, make that call to that big presentation and they can feel the fear, the anxiety in their system. Take me through your own approach to that when you're coaching or writing. How would somebody in one of those situations reframe that fear? Fundamentally is to not demonize the experience of fear and the, the, even the relationship to fear. Step number one, because we live in a world that's like when, when you say the word fear, stress, anxiety, nobody thinks of these as positive words, right? We think of them as negative words and negative emotions. So fundamentally, at, at the very first step, this does not... Um, to reframe your relationship to not uh, to, to believe that these are not negative or positive, they just are. And accepting the kind of isness of the emotion is really step one. And ignoring this kind of garbage we see with a lot of quote unquote experts where they say, be fearless, don't be scared. Because what happens is when we think we should be fearless and then we feel fear, we think there's something wrong with us for feeling fear. So if you're feeling fear from, you know, whether it be walking up to somebody in a bar, doing a speech, whatever it is, however the fear shows up, first step is just accept and not judge the fear. Just accept that it's there and it's okay that it's there. There's nothing wrong with you because it's there. Now, once you kind of accept the isness without judging the emotion and labeling it as negative, the next thing you kind of do is go deeper into it. So it, again, this is where it kind of depends on the context of the fear. But like, let's say, you know, it's related to a sales call. You can say, okay, what am I afraid of? Why am I scared? What's the worst case scenario? How do I prepare for that worst case scenario? So like, I, even writing my book was terrifying. Writing a book on fear was absolutely terrifying. And I used to, I, was, I know, right? Like ironically, right? I'm here. I am. Yeah, ironic, yeah. I'm, 
<laughs> I'm the fear guy, all right? I'm the fear bonnet guy. And so I'm the fear talk- guy and I'm scared, yeah. <laughs> but people often think, like when I do talks, they think I'm fearless because of these things that I do, and I'm not. I'm terrified of almost everything I do, but that's why I do it. So engage the fear. Like, why am I scared? Okay, I'm scared that this book will be a bad book, right? So, okay, what, like, what's scary about that? I'll get a one-star review. People will judge me, all these kind of things. Okay, how do I prepare for it? So I studied from authors like Jack Canfield, the Chicken Soup of the Soul author, to write a, how to write a better book. Because, because I was scared of writing a bad book, I wrote a better book. And I actually engaged and I studied, how do you write a better book? So my fear led me to writing a better book. Whereas if I wasn't scared, I wouldn't have cared. I would have just put something out there. So I always like to say that fear is not the enemy of love. Fear is an expression of love. So when you're feeling that fear, accept it, understand it, go meta, rise above the fear just to be with the fear and then actually leverage the energy of fear. It's been shown that it's far more valuable to, instead of saying things like, oh, calm down, calm down, eliminate the fear, actually say, okay, I am scared. This fear is like excitement. Use the fear, channel it, be with it. Let that kind of feeling bubble up in you and use it to take, to step into the, the, the content of the fear, whatever it may be, like, you know, walking up to somebody, doing, making the call. Because it's not going to go away and your goal is not to make it go away. Use the energy of that fear and fear can be very, very powerful energy. Like I said, everything I do, I'm terrified. And I use that, use that fear to step into it, to prepare for it, to understand it. I mean, even when I was skiing across an ice gap, I was terrified. So by engaging the fear, I prepared for it. And I used to drag tires around the streets of New Jersey to train for that expedition because I was scared. So I always like to say fear propels you to prepare, but you got to use the fear. And then you can also use like other techniques are you can visualize, visualize yourself moving through the fear, visualize what's on the other side of it, be, have clarity on the other side. What's the, what's this, what's the thing waiting for you on the other side of that fear? What's your motivation? Have a strong why, like what's that, what's that force driving you? You know, when I wrote Fearvana and I was procrastinating because I was scared, I would say, look, this message isn't just about me. This message can save lives. And if I were to die tomorrow, never having shared this message with the world, how would I feel? So getting clear on your objectives, on your why, on your purpose, all of these things can help you drive through the fear. But fundamentally, don't try to get rid of it. Don't eliminate it. It's a, it's a futile endeavor, and it's only going to make it worse. Accept it and use it. Do you find that labeling your emotions helps you? Yes. So when you actually pause to label your emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional parts of your brain and increases activity in the parts of your brain related to focus and awareness. So basically what that does is it's you're not letting your yourself be consumed by your emotions and simply reacting to them. You're creating a space between the emotion and you as the feeler of that emotion. So you can consciously choose how you want to respond to it. So simply pause. Okay, I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling anxious. Labeling it, pausing, labeling it as many times. I actually, I actually even talk out loud to myself when I'm feeling this thing. Okay, I'm feeling really anxious about this webinar that I might be hosting or whatever it is I might be doing. And pause and labeling it. And you will notice that it creates the space between you, the feeling, and you as the feeler of that feeling. So fundamentally, just like always remember, you are not your thoughts, your feelings, or your experiences. You are the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings, and the experiencer of your experiences. So that space between what is and who you choose to be outside of what is, that space is, is everything. That space will shape your destiny. But you first have to become aware that there is a space, then you can do something in that space. So there are, I'm sure, a lot of us listening who are questioning in their mind saying, that makes sense, but could I do that? How do you step people from that point of great philosophical thoughts great content, great ideas into taking the step to step into the adversity. I worked with this one veteran um, 
who was struggling with anger issues. And the, and he went to a therapist who said anger is just a choice. You need to stop choosing to be anger, angry, which was a terrible thing to say because at this point in his, in his brain, he couldn't control the anger. It was a pattern that had been conditioned over time. We don't control what first shows up in our subconscious, right? Uh, like, I mean, imagine if I'm sitting in this room and somebody comes in with a gun, my brain would respond with fear. I'm not choosing to feel afraid, but I feel fear. So his brain would just simply feel angry. So I had him pause to just, I would have him practice noticing the anger, not fighting it, not resisting it, not judging himself for feeling it, but just noticing it, just being with it, labeling that anger. Why am I feeling angry? What is the meaning behind that anger? What's the meaning I'm attaching to the experience of that anger? And then constantly recognizing that you are not your thoughts, you are not your brain. You are, you are something more. So when you step outside of these challenging emotions, then you can practice training in them. So ultimately, I mean, like, like anybody listening, you can, you can listen to me, you can listen to a podcast, read a book, this, that, and the other thing. And it's, there's going to be these, you know, it can provide a spark of inspiration, but fundamentally to train in adversity, you have to engage adversity. You have to go out there and suffer. So I had a friend recently uh, who, who, uh, who read Fearvana, and then she, she just walked the Camino del Real Trail, and she said, you know, I had read your book, I read, read all these concepts, but she was like, when I experienced this, I struggled, I was really suffering, and honestly, like, having gone through that suffering, I had discovered something so much within myself, having pushed through that suffering. So you have to get out there and suffer. So you might not need to run 72 miles. Maybe it's just one mile. Maybe it's half a mile. Maybe it's not even running. Whatever it is, you got to step at least one step outside your comfort zone into pain, into suffering. Go through moments where one part of you wants to quit and the other part wants to keep fighting. Every time you enter that moment, you're going to learn something about yourself. So ultimately, you just have to take the action. There's no, there's no shortcut to that. You just got to get out there and suffer and train in it. And it's obviously uncomfortable. It's fundamentally uncomfortable. It's the nature of suffering. That's why I say like the most important skill to master in life is a positive relationship to suffering. When you learn how to suffer well, as I like to say, to suffer well, you can do anything in life. It won't matter whether life punches you in the face or whether you're pursuing a meaningful goal. You'll be able to smile in the face of that suffering. Suffering takes many different forms. And one that I heard recently you talk of was running, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's 80 miles running a two-mile loop. And you, to me that, and, and it was a two-mile, I think it was around like a, a, a building or something in a suburban area. Is that right? It was a point two mile loop. Yeah. Point two mile loop around, two mile loop. around my building. Yeah. <laughs> around a, uh, an area in my building in India. And that must have been mind numbing. And during that time, you must have you must have faced some demons of all all varieties, I suspect. 80 miles at a 0.2 mile loop. Tell me, tell me about the dialogue that you have with yourself. Like why why put yourself in that situation? What I'm training my mind to do is to be um is to be able to not be affected by external circumstances. So ultimately I want to get, and by no means am I there, but I want to get to the point where it doesn't matter whether I'm running around a 0.2 mile loop or whether I'm running the most beautiful scenery in the world, because my internal state is, 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 uh, is able to separate itself from the external reality. And so I'm so centered within, aligned within 
that I can essentially do anything because I'm, I'm not affected at the least by my external reality. Now, of course, by no means am I there. This is the kind of thing you take a lifetime to achieve. So I had moments where, I mean, it was just a nightmare going around that 0.2 mile loop because the, the, the thing is like, let's say you were doing this on a treadmill. You could kind of get lost and not know how many miles you're going, right? You could cover up the screen of the treadmill and just keep going and kind of get lost in the flow of this. Whereas going around a 0.2 mile loop, every loop becomes a brutal reminder of how little you've actually accomplished, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so you really have to navigate your internal diet. I mean, your, your mind takes you everywhere. There's moments where like some, and I would basically break it into one hour chunks and you just live your whole life in that one hour chunk. And that's kind of the beauty of why I love long distance running. It becomes a microcosm for life. It teaches you how to live in the present. It gives you a goal to focus on. You go through entire, like intense lows, intense and horrible lows, as well as intense and beautiful highs. And it's kind of this, like this microcosm where you experience everything that you would experience in life in this one setting. So, I mean, it was, it was obviously very, very challenging. The, the, I mean, there were moments where this point to my loop, I was just, I mean, I hated it. <laughs> I hated everything about this point to my loop. There's no other way to put it. It was just a nightmare going around that damn loop. <laughs> You know, it's it's when people hear these shows, they listen to people like yourself who are doing extraordinary things in lots of different areas of their life. And I've heard you say that even with the success of your book, even with the success of the events you attend and the incredible athletic achievements you have and your profile online, success with the Marines, even today you still face the imposter syndrome where you still question yourself and that darkness closes in with all you've now learned all these things you've put yourself through how do you how do you get yourself out of the darkness today where when it starts you're sitting on the couch going even though I've got all this yeah but yeah but how what's what's the process you use to take yourself out of it one part is again just accepting that the self-doubt will be there like I mean anything anything new I do and inevitably I want to grow like for example if I if you want me to go run 10 miler today I wouldn't even be nervous right uh but now anything I push anything you push your limits you're inevitably going to be scared you're inevitably going to have self-doubt this idea of you should just be confident is flawed confidence is not confidence is the result not the fuel so we think that we should just be confident as we step into things no don't be confident have self-doubt have the fear it's okay so one part is I've just become very accustomed and and, and trained myself to be comfortable with self-doubt and fear. Anytime, I mean, I launched a new program recently and I feel constant fear. Is it going to do well? Is it going to be terrible? Are people going to like it? And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I've learned to just be okay with that feeling. So that's kind of part of it is, is training yourself to be okay with the uh, inevitable self-doubt that we'll feel on this journey. Because again, we also, we also hear a lot of these self-help kind of quote unquote experts say, you know, eliminate self-doubt, overcome self-doubt. And I see this all the time and it's really destructive because then we think we should shouldn't feel self-doubt. It's okay to feel self-doubt, but what matters is what you do with it. You don't have to listen to it. You don't, you don't have to let that self-doubt define your actions. I feel it, but I still take action in the face of it. That's part of it. And the other part of it is really, um, acknowledging yourself. So you mentioned, you know, all these accomplishments that I've had, that I have, I have to remind myself of it. This is another thing that's demonized, but it's not actually the enemy. Ego is not the enemy. If you want to be great in life, you have to believe you are great. You have to tap into that greatness. So I actually have to pause and celebrate that. Hey, I've done all these things. I am amazing at all these things and acknowledging myself, celebrating myself. 
myself, owning my ego. So that's kind of one thing is owning my own ego and tapping into my uh, great, my, my own greatness. And we all need to do this, acknowledge ourselves more and then be, have clarity on who I want to step into. So, okay, I'm having the self-doubt, but what's on the other side of this? Why is it, why is it worth me stepping into this self-doubt or into this fear to accomplish this result? So I'm always clear on who is the future Akshay. What's the future Akshay look like? What are the characteristics and the virtues of this future Akshay? And as I'm clear on that, I can transcend this present self to rise into this new self. So it doesn't mean the self-doubt's gone away. I've just transcended it to step into the characteristics and the virtues and the beingness as well as the doingness of this future Akshay. And it's a constant balance of this celebrating your, celebrating who you are in the past, acknowledging who you want to step into in the future, and kind of taking action, reflecting on that action, action and awareness, action and awareness, and really um, moving through that cycle constantly, relentlessly. I mean, the, the pathway is relentless. One of the biggest sports we cover here in the Mojo Radio Show is darts. And you talk about the second dart. Fill us in. What's the philosophy or the thought behind the second dart? So Buddha, as I said, also neuroscience and neuroscience and spirituality have both shown we don't control what first shows up in our brain. So Buddha once said we are all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. So let's say, for example, I stub my toe against a a door. The first dart is the pain in my toe, the pain in my foot. The second dart is when I start saying things like, this door's stupid. Why does God hate me? Why do bad things only happen to me? This house is stupid. And this inner dialogue, this inner conversation. And most of us fall victim and trapped by the second dart. See, as I said, we don't control what first shows up in our brain. So even my veteran friend, for example, with the anger, he couldn't control that. We, it's, it becomes a pattern beyond our control. We're all, we're all at the effect of our subconscious. Our subconscious controls our life. So as I said, for example, if, a, if somebody steps in this room right now with a gun, my brain's responding with fear. That's the first dart, the fear. The second dart is what I do with that fear, the inner dialogue I have with the fear. See, Pete, the problem is not just people have fear. It's the judgment of the fear. It's the fear of fear that's the problem. So I worked with this one guy who had severe anxiety every time he used to sit on the computer. Now, the first dart was the anxiety. He didn't even control it anymore. That was just a pattern. Everybody else he went to tried to help him get rid of the anxiety. He came to me and I said, our goal right now is not even to get rid of the anxiety. It's just to be with it and notice it. That was the first start. The real problem was his inner dialogue. He started saying things to himself like he's weak. He believed himself as pathetic for feeling anxiety. He believed himself as weak, you know, like even, uh, and he just had this whole inner conversation that, oh, because I feel anxiety, I'm never going to be able to write her. Nobody's going to want to read my stuff. Um, you know, I'm never going to be successful. This whole kind of self-talk. And that was the real problem. It's the second darts that really trap us. I call it second dart syndrome, where we go into the spiral of the self-talk. It's important to pause and just acknowledge, okay, this thing is there. This feeling is there. This initial thought is there. But I am not my feelings. I am not my thoughts. I worked with, I mean, when I actually went rock climbing with my ex-wife, she used to, she had felt this terrible fear on this climb. I didn't feel fear, not because I'm more brave, but because my brain had references that said, okay, this climb is not scary for you. You have done much more intense stuff. So she, and then after the climb, she would beat herself up saying, oh, I'm feeling scared. Why weren't you scared? If I'm scared of this, how will I ever achieve anything in life? I'll always be scared. How, you know, what was wrong with me? And this kind of, again, this, this self-talk. And those are the second darts we need to pause and notice and be present to because the second darts are the real enemy. It's okay to feel what you feel. It's okay to think what you think. But having that inner dialogue and that self-conversation, that's where you get to really rise above the first dart and say, okay, what am I going to do with this? And really step outside and consciously respond from your higher self, your divine self, whatever you want to call it, from that higher self, respond to the first darts and choose what you want to do. So as I mentioned, self-doubt. I mean, even when I reached out to the Dalai Lama for the forward of my book, I constantly felt self-doubt. But I was able to notice the second 
rise above it and say, I'm going to take action anyway. Yeah, it's a good philosophy, isn't it? I mean, it's a good, it's a good metaphor, a good analogy. It's, it's a really profound way to almost qualify those waves of thought or feelings or emotions that come over us when something happens. I think it's really powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I've noticed that that, that one concept, I'm glad you brought it up, seems to help a lot of people because as they're going about their day, they'll just notice, oh, here's the second darts. These are the second mm. darts, right? Like mm. they'll start to notice these second darts come up as they're having this inner dialogue with themselves. And, uh, and hopefully then by noticing it, then you can sort of stop yourself from going down that spiral and choose outside of it. What's interesting with it, without laboring on it, but when you play darts, you generally have three darts in your hand and you throw the first dart. And what's interesting in hearing you say that is you've got two darts in your hand and you can then look at those darts and say, what's going to happen with them? Whereas we tend to just, when something happens, we tend to just throw the second dart without really contemplating or taking a moment to breathe, even maybe a millisecond to think, I've now got my second one. What will I do with that? And gee, if someone could take the pause between those two darts to think about and be intentional, probably the word we hear a lot more today in the world is being intentional, intentional thinking, intentionality. Um, I think it's really quite profound, particularly we could teach children that. Yeah, it, I mean, especially like you said, the younger generation. We because more often than not, we get trapped. We 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 don't recognize there's that space between the emotion and our and, and our conscious ability to choose outside of it, right? So if I feel anger, I'll get angry, as opposed to okay, what can I do with this anger? How can I consciously respond to it? And when we're younger, we even are much more sort of victimized by our emotions and letting them control our lives, as opposed to. Uh, noticing the second dart and being able to be intentional, like you said, and be conscious about how we're responding to it instead of just reacting to it. Uh, The other thing I'm going to ask you about, we share a common movie and I'm going to read some dialogue from a movie. Why don't you tell me what the movie is, why it started this journey for you and what it means to you. The line is, you going back in? There's still men out there. When I go home, people ask me, hey, Hoot, why you do it, man? Why? become some kind of war junkie. That movie started a lot of things for you. What was it about that movie? And and when you watch the movie today before bed, what does it say to you? Yeah, so that movie is uh, Black Hawk Down. It's a war movie based on a true story. Watching that movie triggered something in me, uh, particularly, I mean, many parts of that movie, but particularly there's one scene where these two these two soldiers that are high in the chopper, they volunteer to go to the ground to set up a defensive perimeter for a fallen, for one of their fallen soldiers. And, and knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are coming their way and knowing that they have no idea when any sort of uh, backup is going to come for them. And ultimately, those two soldiers died. They received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for valor in the U.S. military. They received the Medal of Honor posthumously for their courage. And the guy who they died protecting, Gary, um, sorry, Michael Durant, is still alive today. So watching that really triggered something in me. Yeah, Michael Durant was the guy they protected. Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar was the two the two soldiers who, uh, who who died and received the Medal of Honor posthumously. Watching watching that really triggered something in me. And that particular scene too, in the end, where he says it's about the men next to you. I mean, the courage to sacrifice your life to put everything on the line for a fellow human being, especially when I was on drugs, living this very selfish and meaningless existence. It really planted a seed that said, you know, what am I doing with my life? Would I be able to have that kind of courage? I mean, I still remember right after watching the movie, I, I went with my friend. He had the book Black Hawk Down. I read that book Black Hawk Down, devoured that book, and started reading book after book after book on military and life and combat. And uh, and that's what had me get out of uh, get out of a world of drugs almost overnight and decide to join the military. And to this day, I mean, that scene, I actually watched that scene 
before these interviews. I watch that scene before I do a talk. It's just a one and a half minute scene you can find on YouTube because that reminds me that whatever I'm doing, it puts me in the space that it's not about me. It's about, in that case, they say the men next to you, but it's about the people next to me. It's about the people I serve. All my stuff, like I go through stuff, I go through my low moments in life, but it's not about me. It's about something more. And that movie is a beautiful reminder of that ability to transcend ourselves in service of something greater. I mean, again, that movie changed my life. It was a trigger that really planned, that changed my life. So to this day, if and when I watch any clips from it or watch the movie, I mean, even the, even the theme, the, the song from that movie, it, it puts me in a very um, powerful space, really reminding me that it's about something so much more. And we all have that ability in us, uh, that courage in us to transcend ourselves in service of something greater. It just has to be trained and cultivated and practiced on a regular basis. And so it just reminds me that, yeah, that, that, that this mission is bigger than me. When you think back to that time when you saw the movie, got the book and made the decision, how would you rate your self-worth back then? And how has it changed for you today? You seem to get joy. You seem to get, find the beauty in adversity. Does does what you do today give you more of a self-worth feeling than you had back in the day when you were sort of addicted? I mean, how, 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 do, you, how do you reconcile self-worth from back then to today? You know, when I, um, I, I definitely didn't have as nearly as much awareness as I do uh, today back then when I, when I engaged in it. But I do remember when I came out of the Marines, there was a huge amount of self-worth and pride in the fact that I had just gone through this. I mean, two doctors told me that boot camp would kill me because of a blood disorder I was born with. So I had to kind of fight my way into the Marines just to get in. Uh, uh, to, it took me about a year and a half to go through these medical processes, getting the waivers to go in. And I felt really proud of myself, but actually paradoxically, I felt probably more self-worth coming out of the Marines than I have until recently. I've really struggled with self-worth until not too long ago because I always felt guilty about being happy even, that I have no right to be happy. There's too many people suffering in the world. So as I touched on, you know, I recently spent seven days in darkness, in the dark, darkness, silence and isolation. And it was actually um, in the in that experience where I really started to find and tap into more of my self-worth to acknowledge myself more. Uh, that's why I was talking about that ego in this list. I've only just started writing this list now, things that I've done and acknowledging that, hey, I, I've done all these things and, and really uh, uh, celebrating my own self-worth. But it's been something I've struggled with more and more, even though all these things things I've done. Right. But I just felt that, um, that I am not worthy because I haven't suffered enough to earn my place on this planet. I haven't, uh, I haven't gone enough, gone through enough in war. There's people suffering all over the world. Who am I to be happy? And these kind of, that kind of inner dialogue, um, that I've wrestled with. And actually, like I, like I said, going through, going into the darkness retreat actually brought up a lot of light within me. So, uh, paradoxically again, but that really helped ingrain some self work, but, but now, and now it's a practice like anything. I don't believe in this kind of, again, the self-help thing that, you know, magical aha hits and you change your life overnight, like an aha could hit, but then you have to cultivate that through consistent action. So right now that's really a constant work for me to really, uh, in, tap into my self-worth a little bit more and more throughout, I mean, every day ultimately. The Marines, SEALs, special ops guys, uh, and you hear this terminology a lot about taking ownership. And obviously Jocko Willink, 20-year Navy SEAL, wrote the book Extreme Ownership, and he talks about a lot. And I, th- I, I really buy into that. And I'm curious of your perspective of, Taking personal ownership, and we've talked a lot about that. It's the internal dialogue, stepping into it, reframing emotions. 
Where's that sweet shot? Where's that sweet spot, Akshay, between taking ownership and beating yourself up? How do we? Where is that sweet spot, and how do we navigate that? So I think you know, with taking ownership, it's this kind of paradoxical thing again. Like, first off, is accepting that we actually don't control what first shows up in our brain. So when we actually ex- accept, so I call it the myth of free will. When we accept that we are very much like the free free will, we don't have as much free will as we like to think we do. Then we can actually rise above to get, regain free will. So there's a gr- great quote that summarizes this from this guy P. D. Uspensky, who said, "Man is a machine, but a very peculiar machine." He is a machine that when recognizing he is a machine can cease to be a machine. So that's the starting point, right? Like I, I, okay, I don't control these things that happen, but now once they've happened, now I take full ownership over how I respond to them. So that's, that's where I think sometimes ownership gets raw is gets flawed is that I feel like, Oh, I get like, like if I get scared doing a talk, I'll beat myself up. Say, Oh, I shouldn't feel it. You know, ownership over my fear. The thing is feel the fear, but take ownership over what you do with it. So take ownership over those second darts, if you will. That's step one. And then as far as beating yourself up, it's really, I would say, you know, it, it, it depends on everybody's uh, relationship to them, to themselves, to, to, to being hard on themselves. I do think we live in a world that's very, very soft. I think this idea of love yourself no matter what, I am enough no matter what, is completely flawed. We're not enough, and that's okay. That's not a bad thing, you know? We are all flawed human beings, and that's okay. That's not a horrible thing. This idea of, look, if I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see, I'm not going to stand there and tell, or I shouldn't be standing there telling myself, I am enough and I love myself. No. If I don't like what I see, then get out there and do something about it. Anger and pain can be a beautiful fuel to, to drive us into meaningful action. So one of the things I used to do when I was a little heavier, now I don't, I mean, I'm an ultra runner, I don't have a lot of fat on me, but I used to look at myself in the mirror and that I had, and I would tell myself, you look at you, you're fat and worthless, go do something about it, you know? Uh, and I would berate myself for being fat because I was, and I shouldn't just sit there saying, oh, I love my body no matter what. No, I didn't like it. So go do something about it. So, so ownership is saying that, look, my world is completely in my hands. Now you could be, unless you're in like a war zone or something, you can't control your actions. You can, you can only control, but you can always control your attitude. So ultimately in life, there's only two things we can control, our actions or our attitude. Now, if you're not in a survival situation, you almost always have the luxury to control both. So you get to decide, okay, I can't control this, but I can control this, right? Like I, what are the things in my life that I can't control? If I can't control my actions, then let me go do something about it. And if I have to beat myself up to get it done, then get it done. I mean, when I overcame alcoholism, I actually realized that in that case, it was more valuable for me to really forgive myself when I broke my I broke my sobriety a few times and just to say, okay, look, I have a very addictive brain. And I and I mean, I, like the addictive brain is, is a fascinating beast and it's crazy how, how where that took me. But just to forgive myself, okay, I can forgive myself here and just acknowledge that I have an addictive brain and say, it's okay, I did this. Now what can I learn from it, right? Like what can I do with it? But there are other times where I beat myself up all the time. Like when I'm in the gym, you know, like my inner dialogue will tell, we'll talk about how stop being weak, you know, and I curse at myself uh, <laughs> a lot. So I think we, uh, sometimes I need to, th- I think we need to be harder on ourselves and, and especially in this very kind of soft world of like, participation trophies and celebrating media mediocrity punch yourself in the face i mean not literally but punch yourself in the face sometimes and say look i don't like this thing about myself i don't like this pattern of behavior let me go do something about it we we spoke before we started recording about spirituality and you spent seven days in the darkness and i suspect that was quite a spiritual exercise for you and i've heard you say that spirituality will guide you and you think about that 
as part of your decision-making process. But at times, it seems that it's misguided you. So today, how are you sure that what you are saying from a spiritual perspective or a fearvana perspective, how, how, is there a process you go through to make sure it's making the right decisions? Because you've taken some off-ramps which have gone down bad areas. How are you sure today? You know, you can never entirely be sure, right? We do the best we can with the references that, have, that are around us. Now, I have, I have a wealth of past life experience that has taught me a lot. And so I look at that as a decision-making tool. I look at references around me, people around me to make, I mean, you, ultimately our brain operates from references. So we're looking at references to make calculated decisions. And one of the things, even when I make decisions is I always, I'm always clear on what is the struggle that this decision will endure. So I think when we make goals, we often like generally speaking, again, in the self-help world, we'll talk about setting a goal that empowers us. We feel really good about it, visualize ourselves, you know, feeling all good and all those kind of things. But what we don't do is actually get clear on what is the struggle this goal will entail, right? Like having a smart goal or whatever, I think is not the best idea. Like, okay, if let's say I want to make a million dollars in, in a year, right? It's easy to set that goal and say, oh, I'm so excited. This feels great. And I can visualize it, all that stuff, but it's going to entail a lot of struggle a lot of hard work, a lot of pain. And it's actually valuable and far more valuable to get clear on what is the struggle that this, that I will have to endure. So at any crossroads in life, there's always going to be a struggle. So I always like to say, it's not about which passion you want to follow, but which struggle are you willing to endure and then get clear, you know, do I want to work this job or do I want to start this business? Do I want to be in this relationship or be single? Any crossroads, there's going to be a struggle. And I actually, so I always get clear. One of the ways I know that, okay, is this struggle one I am willing to endure? I know a life of trying to be an ultra runner and this crazy successful entrepreneur is, is has a lot of struggle. Is it a struggle I'm willing to endure? At this point now it is, I've chosen to, I've, I have enough references to prove it. And I go through many, many hard days where everything just feels sucked. Like it just, it just sucks. I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything, but I've learned to rise above my feelings. So I guess that to, to make decisions is always getting clear on what the struggle will be, getting clear on that, and then ask yourself, is this struggle one I am willing to endure? And using all the references you have around you from your own life, from other people's life, from every, every you know, to make the best decision and then, and then realize, okay, is this path I'm going to, uh, one I'm going to follow? And, you know, you take the path and you might, it might change. Like when I joined the Marines, I actually wanted to go career in the Marines and become an officer in special forces. That path changed, but I have zero regrets about it. It was a beautiful life experience. Only now, and I'm 35 years old, only now am I very, very, very clear on what my path looks like. And this is the path for the rest of my life. I know that nothing's going to change now. And I'm very, very clear on that, but it's taken me a while to get there. So, uh, you know, you go through the ups and downs of life, but you're, but it's always a learning opportunity. And if, if you take a path and you realize this is not for you, as long as you get something from it and use that struggle to take the next one and to learn from that next one. And eventually, you know, when you build up enough references, you will, you will have clarity on what your path really is. And some people know it at a young age and good for them if they do, you know, no, again, that's awesome. If they do, I have I have a friend who uh, is almost about to be a grandmaster in chess and she knew she wanted to be a grandmaster in chess when she was like, I don't know, six or something like that, seven, you know, so that's awesome. I didn't happen to me, but so whatever your, whatever your path is, just know about uh, the struggle and ask yourself, is this struggle one you're willing to endure? Just one final thing. We, we talked about Black Hawk Down. We've talked about your service in the military. And I heard you say that you watch war movies before bed. Tell me, in your mind, what's, what's your psychology? Why do you do that? How, does, how, how, how do you benefit? What's, what's the outcome that you, like, why do you do it? 
So I don't do this every night. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are times when I do it, but not. I certainly don't do this on a, on like a, every single night. But I do it at times because it's. It, I like experiencing the intensity of that emotion. The, the intensity of the, uh, of the, I mean, they often tear me up. I mean, I'll watch this scene from either Black Hawk Down or from like Band of Brothers, from Hacksaw Ridge. And it, I feel like, I mean, I'll start crying. It tears me up. But I love experiencing the intensity of life at that level. Uh, it also reminds me about, all these scenes are not about the, the horrors of war, but it reminds me of our own ability to transcend ourselves. To like, I mean, again, in Hacksaw, in Hacksaw Ridge, the guy single-handedly saved seventy-five people off, and it's again, it's a true story. He saved seventy-five people off this cliff, and you watch that, and it tears me up because just the inhuman ability to endure suffering, to rise above ourselves in service of something greater, is so powerful. And also, it also sometimes like there's a clip from Black Hawk, I mean, from Band of Brothers, where they rescue a concentration camp, and it's horrific. I mean, again, a concentration camp, it's a horrific clip. So sometimes I do it just to remind me of the suffering in the world and that it's on me to do something about it. So sometimes I just like to stay present to the human suffering um, so I can actually be reminded that, look, my mission is 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 important. It's on me to get out of my own way and uh, to just to stay present to suffering and remind myself that um, that they are out there, those suffering more than me. And it's on, it's it's my responsibility. At least I believe now it is, because in many ways I should have died in the war. I actually found out 10 years after the war that my vehicle drove over an active bomb. And for whatever reason, it didn't explode. And so, you know, for maybe in many ways I should have died out there. But now that I'm here, it's on me to do something about the suffering of my human family. So sometimes I just like to remind myself of that as intense as it is. But I think, I mean, I think life is meant to be experienced intensely, highs and lows. It, it, there's nothing more beautiful than that, even the lows. And uh, I like life, I like life at that level. <laughs> is is there an off switch for Akshay? Like, do you do you have an off switch? Is there a time when you disconnect from the stuff we've talked about today and just chill? Do you? How do you do it? Uh, one of my favorite ways to kind of take some time off is move, you know, movies and, and not like war movies, but in a lighter movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so once in a while, I mean, I don't take days off. Maybe if it's like, maybe if it's like after a lo- really long run and my brain is cognitively too drained to work anyway, then, you know, like I might chill out, watch a movie or something like that. Or sometimes if I, like when New- in New Jersey, I live on my own, but when I'm in India, taking some family time, uh, stuff like that. So I don't, I don't take long, I don't take days off or anything. And, um, but I do take, I'll maybe take, you know, sometimes, uh, some time off just to, to, uh, to chill. Uh, but I like to, I, I like to keep reminding myself that there's, there's something more out there and, uh, there's, there's no finish line. So it's, it's on me to stay in the fight no matter what. And so when I take recovery, it's only in service of coming back in the fight stronger as opposed to, I just need to, you know, that's supposed to really taking time off. So it's like, okay, taking time off so I can recover and come back, if that makes sense. No, look, the whole thing's made great sense, mate. It's been such a privilege and such a great honour to chat with you. The book is Fearvana, The Revolutionary Science of How to Turn Fear into Health, Wealth and Happiness. We've covered that pretty deeply through the show. People want to get a hold of it, track you down, learn more about your programs. Where's your hub, mate? Where do you send people? Fearvana.com. So that's F E A R V A N A, Fearvana.com. And like you said, the book is on Amazon in Kindle, hard copy, and Audible. All the profits from the book are going to charity as well. So uh, we support some many, many worthy causes with that book as well. And you can find me at Fearvana. So all the profits are going to charity from the book? Yes. 
all the profits from the book itself. Uh, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, per sale, you're not making huge profits anyway. But we have still donated thousands and thousands of dollars to, uh, mm. for example, we just supported we just supported a, a, a former child soldiers in West Africa. We've supported uh, these young girls who are victims of sex trafficking in India. Uh, we supported helping a build build a school in Liberia. So we supported some beautiful causes, and all the profits are going to to different uh, causes and hundred percent of the profits are going to the people that need it as opposed to administrative costs or anything like that through, through charity. So I'm blessed to say that we're really uh, doing some good work through the fear. It's actually through my nonprofit, the Fearvana foundation. I have my own 501c3, the nonprofit. So all the profits go into my foundation and then I find worthy causes that, I mean, there's plenty of worthy causes, so not to say that, but but some that we can uh, we can support and help. So, look, I think it's so noble. I, I think the point you just made is so important. It's going to, I think, it's going to get more light as we progress through our careers and people become more aware of this. But there's a lot of money being given to charities that never sees the light of day because it does get sucked up in executive wages and administration and wastage. So, somebody who says all the profits are going. I think is just fantastic. And um, it's, it's interesting that I think in America in particular, the people, the first responders, people in the military are, are really getting wonderful support. And I hope that that spreads around the world in the same way where people like Black Rifle Coffee, you guys are doing great, being of great service to those who deserve it. So good on you, mate. This has been fantastic. I really have enjoyed meeting you, talking to you. Hearing your thoughts, good on the work you're doing. It's just, it's brilliant. It's, it's uh, good on you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think Gary would also like to thank you because in six seasons of doing this show, he's only had a handful of episodes where he's been able to include darts in the conversation. So I'm sure Gary <laughs> will remember was, this how, episode. How good was that? <laughs> <laughs> how good is the second dart? I, I, I'm, I'm going to the board. I'm going to the board this afternoon. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. <laughs> Love that. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unexpected, wasn't it? I uh, say so thank you so much, mate, and uh, good luck with everything. It's um, and I, I, you're doing really, really great work, and it's, it's it's terrific to have been able to connect with you. Thank you so much, my friend. Likewise, been a pleasure. Hey, I'm David Koska, international security expert and tactical trainer. After spending time on the Mojo Radio Show, I'll be filing my own report. There must be bits in that show that you could take to your coaching of the young men, they are young men now, who are playing rugby, there must be stuff you can take from the studio to the rugby ground to teach the boys about how they face disappointment and the discipline they bring to the game. Does that, does that resonate for you as a coach? Oh, big time. There's so much over the last six years of us doing this show that I've taken and the boys who have been with me through that journey have taken on board. It's amazing. I, I think I've mentioned to you a couple of times, I actually get comments from parents about mm. some of the stuff, which is great. Nice. Good for and us. And that's a good segue or segue as they say in the business. Uh, speaking of which, just some feedback that I got. I posted, do you remember, speaking of, tie a few threads together, rugby, all blacks, World Cup, footy, parents, Feedback. <laughs> okay. I posted something on LinkedIn uh, a couple of weeks back only because, do you recall episode 232 on the Mojo Radio Show with James Kerr who wrote Legacy, which was a look inside the, the culture, the dressing room, the men that are the All Blacks? I do indeed. 
Indeed I do. I posted a story on that on LinkedIn because I honestly thought that he was one of the few guys that really did not waste a word. Every bit was gold. He he dropped things that I'd never heard him talk about anywhere before and the book is just terrific. Anyway, it got a lot of feedback but just some great comments. A guy called Mark Parker uh, wrote and said, this is a great episode from the Mojo Radio Show. His comments about doing honest debriefs after wins and losses really resonated for me. Former guest Louise Cash wrote, so good. Mark Pacey said, great book and great episode, Gary. Thank you. Ian Grant wrote, really enjoyed this episode. Looking forward to reading the book. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. And the reason I bring that up is I think the gold with with podcasts, I've said before, is you can save them. There is a, a part on your iTunes app where you can save them. But for me, hearing you talk about parents, what they've taken from it is we need to, number one, go back and keep these things. And I would say find your top 10 episodes and listen to them once every three or four months and master the gold that guys like James Kerr drops. But number two, as Ian Grant said, it's just thanks for bringing my attention. I'm going to grab the book or I'm going to action this. I'm going to do something about it because I think we just crave more and more podcasts, more and more blogs, more and more posts, more and more videos, but we don't actually put the rubber on the ice cap road. And I think this show is a great example of just so much value. We need to stop down and do what Cameron Schwab from last week's episode said is it's not just the learning, it's how you learn and then how you access it to do something with to execute. And um, so that's great. So I, I thank you to all the people who've given us feedback because it means a lot to us, but it also means that people are getting some value from the show, doesn't it? Well, with no sponsors, feedback is our life and breath. Absolutely. It's our breakfast of champions. That's feedback. right, exactly. <laughs> the Mojo Pages. Now, uh, before we go too much further, I got a book uh, sent to me last week by one of our listeners, a guy called Mike Logan, who's written a book called The Asking Leader. I would say to you, Mike, well done, mate. Anybody who's written a book knows how damn difficult it is. And mm. he sent me a book and in the front it says, to Gary, this is what has kept my mojo working, Mike Logan. The book is called The Asking Leader. You find it at askingleader.com. Nice. Uh, well done, Mike, for doing it. It's a book about asking questions as a leader. But I, I think this leads on to what I was just about with LinkedIn is you've got to find your thing that gets your mojo working and then, as Mike has done, is execute. Because it's, it's bloody hard writing a book. Yeah, I bet it is. You know what? Mike also knows how to down a steak. I can tell you that much. Oh, goes all right in the steak <laughs> He <steaks>. does, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of which... <laughs> I did not have a remarkable fact at the front end of the oh, show, but I have boy. a remarkable fact for the back end. Okay. Right. Remarkably, I went to the prize cupboard here in the studio and I found a soap on a rope. <laughs> the microphone ones. Yeah. <laughs> so, for anybody, here's the challenge, folks. All you need to do is go to iTunes reviews, <laughs> leave us a review and use the word soap in the review. <laughs> I will see it. I'll read it out online. I don't, in fact, I think I've got three here. Uh, so if we get more than one, that's fine. You've got to use the word soap, put it in the review, and we will get in touch with you, get your address. We will mail it out at our cost because we have no advertising and no sponsors. We're just nice guys. Doseki, <laughs> and we will post one of these out to you. And uh, can't believe you've as got Drew those. Ginn, who is a dual gold medalist from the Olympics and a great Australian champion rower. Mm. He said that, yes, he's won a lot of gold. Yes, he's won a lot of world championships, but 
nothing, nothing on his prize cupboard looks as good as the soap I wrote for the Mojo Radio Show. I don't know if I didn't say oh, anymore. This stands to reason, let's be honest. That's what I like about you. The Mojo Radio Show. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters. Yeah. It's been amazing. Jason has just joined the Patreon tribe. We have put out Explosive Hits 2019 has gone out, which is pretty near three hours of gold. We have some of the best stuff from the last year. We've just done our first backstage pass, which has been published to all our Patreon supporters. That happens every, I don't know, month or so to anybody who subscribes to us on Patreon. Which when Lola reminds a, us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's really good too. It's just, uh, and it's great fun. So thank you to everyone on Patreon, Debbie and Jackie and Jeremy and all the guys there. It's, we really appreciate it. it means yeah, totally. That means a whole bunch to us. Uh, and we're about to put up a whole bunch of new targets for us so we can do more with what we do and get to more people. So thank you. But I don't, I've got to be honest, mate. I'm not sure that people want to wear our bonces on the T-shirt. Let's be honest. I like the idea, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm into it. Yeah? All right. Let's put it out let's there. See, see let's, what happens. Let's, let's, yep. We'll whiteboard it. <laughs> <laughs> but remember to take down the bits we don't use. Now, to take us out, can we, Lola, can we do a Gone But Not Forgotten? Gone but not forgotten. Ooh, we haven't done one of those for a while. So it's no, there would be no doubt that if you are a foodie and yes. you are somebody who likes to explore in the food world, a sad, sad loss to the world was Anthony Bourdain, an American. Mm. He was a celebrity chef. He was an author, probably actually well-known as not just a chef but as a best-selling author who changed changed the whole inside world of the kitchen and being a chef, what it's really like. And then he became what they call a travel documentarian and he starred in programs across the world, sort of exploring international cuisine and culture and probably as a, in that was also exploring the human condition and how that all relates back to food and community. And his book, Kitchen Confidential was that book, looked inside the world of the kitchen, was huge. Then his TV shows like A Cook's Tour and No Reservations explored the real world of food from the streets to the best five-star restaurants. And do you remember Anthony Bourdain? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I, I'm a, a bit of a foodie. So, yeah, well aware of Anthony. I went to his restaurant uh, oh, did some you? years back. Yeah, I was taken there by some people in New York Nice. And it was amazing. Probably the best chips I've ever had in my life. Actually, his steak, his steak and chips was insanely good. And I'm oh. very, very glad I was taken there because the bill was, I think the bill would have cost more than my ute. <laughs> I don't doubt that. Yeah, I don't doubt that. But you've got to do it. I found a comment between, this is a comment that was made or a conversation between Anthony Bourdain and a rock icon from back in the day. Do you remember Iggy Pop? Of course, the man himself. So Iggy Pop and Anthony Bourdain were on season five, episode two of Parts Unknown, which was another travel documentary type thing on food and travel that Anthony Bourdain hosted. And the conversation was as such. Iggy Pop said, you seem like a curious person. Anthony Bourdain said, it's my only true virtue. Iggy Pop then said, curiosity is a good thing to be. It seems to pay some unexpected dividends. And he called Anthony Bourdain a great curious elder. And if you go back to episode 225, if you haven't heard it yet with Chip Conley, 
there is this growing valuing of wisdom from people who may have passed what we typically see as their prime in business today. But the making of a modern day elder, the wisdom at work is what Chip wrote about in his book. And it just, I don't know, I just like the idea of the celebrity chef, this explorer, talking with a pretty out there punk rocker. But both of them talked about curiosity, which Bourdain showed in books and travel documentaries. And he was an extremely good writer. And Iggy Pop was this punk icon that's influenced a whole generation of rockers. And then you tie it back to, well, in a business sense, we talked to Chip Connolly and how elders are so valuable to bring wisdom to the workplace. I don't know, just for me, there's a lot of threads that tie together there and end in a bit of rock and roll. What do you think? I think that's just about right. You were talking about eating chips at his restaurant before. Have you been to the Fat Duck and tried his thrice-cooked chips? Yeah, no, oh. I... I don't know that anything tops those. I was trying to work out which restaurant to go to. I looked the menu of the Fat Duck, but honestly, that sort of food, just as much as it pained me, even to go there for the experience, Mm. that sort of food just wouldn't sit well for me. Really? But I I respect Heston. I think Heston's a god in gustatory exploration and curiosity. Mm. But I just wish he did a good Steak and chips on the grill. <laughs> You're just a country boy at heart, aren't you? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. If there was a song by Iggy Pop that you recall from your early mm-hmm. days in radio that we would play, a charting song, what would it be? Well, you talked about him experimenting and there's not much more experimenting that you could think of is taking a punk rock icon and putting to, putting him together with a pop icon like Kate Pearson from the B-52s and the result was also his biggest hit. So I guess we should play Candy, right? It's a rainy afternoon. We're up. 1990. The big city. Been 20 years, Candy. You were so fine.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime... To polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirdwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>